Okay, so this past Wednesday, like I've already said, was the first day of the season of Lent. And I've had several people ask me to help them understand what exactly Lent is and how to observe it. Um, And I've had others come to me because they thought Lent was solely a Catholic practice. And so they were confused that we practice here. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of history about all of that before I get into talking about how Lent affects us and our personal spiritual lives. So it's true that the Christian calendar, which is the the calendar of, of the Christian year that we follow as Christians, some don't realize they're following it, some just know, oh, it's Christmas, and some don't know, oh, it's Easter, but, but those days are set by a Christian calendar. And that calendar came out of the Catholic Church. Everything that we know of as Christianity was funneled through the Catholic Church in history. So we had the, the early church, which was just this organic, uh, grassroots movement begun by the Holy Spirit of God and the disciples who loved and knew Jesus, and it just bloomed and grew and spread like wildfire, which is how the Holy Spirit works. And then Constantine, the emperor of Rome, saw that this was an opportunity And he claimed Christianity as the religion of Rome, which meant that the Roman Empire took over the way Christians worshipped and functioned and all of that. Some of it, I think, is really good, and some of it is beautiful, and some of it we disagree with. That's why we're not Catholic. And, you know, we're all, but we, but everything that we have, that we know of as Christianity, was funneled through history through the Catholic Church. So that means that, uh, Up until the 1500s, pretty much everybody was either Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, which was basically the Catholics of the East, or they they were uh, Anglicans, which is what happened when King Henry VIII could not get a divorce, and so he started his own religion, which is basically every practice was simply still the Catholic practices, except he got to get divorced. So, you know, that's that's where that came from. But in the 1500s, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, very devout, became convicted that the Catholic Church was corrupt, and he wanted reform. He had no intention of ever leaving his beloved Catholic Church. Didn't even occur to him that wasn't a thing. Nobody left the Catholic Church. You were either Christian and Catholic or you weren't. That's it. So he took these, these, he wrote down all of his grievances with the church. He called it the 95 Theses, right? All his grievances. He wrote them all down on a piece of paper. And he goes to the, the, to, the, to the cathedral in the center of town, and he nails his 95 Theses to the door, which is how you made an announcement at that time. That was like the bulletin board, the Facebook page of the town, of the church. That's where you went to air your grievances. He nailed it there. It became very popular. Everybody saw it. Everyone heard about it. It went in every direction. He had no idea it was going to happen. And in the end, the Catholic Church excommunicated him for heresy. Well, Martin Luther's still a Christian. He still loves Christ. He still has a deep faith. 
he still loves to worship. And so he continued to worship, and a movement started out of that that we now know of as Lutheranism. And other Protestant churches poured out of that time period until we have all of the denominations that we know of today. Every single one of these denominations picked and chose which parts of the Catholic faith they wanted to practice. So everything we have comes from the Catholic Church at some, in some way, shape, or form. So all of the Protestant churches, from the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church to the Methodists to the Disciples, that's us, we're the Disciples, to the Lutherans, the Baptists, the Holiness Churches, to the Mennonites, the Nazarenes, the Presbyterians, we have all looked at the traditional practices of the Catholic Church and picked what was most meaningful to us and what wasn't. Based on our interpretation of Scripture, more often, mostly, hopefully, we were looking at Scripture when we picked these things, right? So many Protestants have chosen to observe the major parts of the Christian calendar that was set by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we don't celebrate the saints' days, of which there are many, right? Because we don't recognize saints as being anyone more special than any other person, right? In the Protestant Church, all believers are saints. We're all saints in the Protestant faith. Um, and so we don't observe those holidays. But there are others that we do. We, we celebrate and we remember the birth of Christ. The day that the kings visited the child Jesus. The 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness in preparation for his ministry on earth and in preparation for his sacrifice. We remember the trial and the death of Jesus. We remember the resurrection of Jesus. That's Good Friday. And at the beginning of the church, when the Holy Spirit of God, we remember that time when the Holy Spirit came upon those disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven. And those seasons are known as Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Easter, and Pentecost. And Pentecost is followed by several months of what we call ordinary time, which is just a time when we focus on the life of the early church, on Jesus' ministry, and the work of those early disciples. And when ordinary time ends, we're right back to Advent again. It's very cyclical, and it's, to me, symbolic of the circle of life. And I love the Christian calendar. And so I love that in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, we also observe those, those holy days. However, we want to because we're congregational, and so nobody tells us that we have to. But it is a part of our tradition. So now we are in the season of Lent, which is inspired by this scripture. This is from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he was famished. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, mm, It is written, One does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Well, then the devil took him to the holy city and he placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him that if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And see, now the devil's bringing scripture into it, right? Jesus started by using scripture, saying, no, no, no. So the devil goes, oh, I could play that game. And he brings in scripture and he says, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, no, I know the scriptures better than you do. He says, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. May God bless the reading of his word. So after Jesus had finished fasting in the wilderness, he really and truly began his three-year ministry on earth and his three-year journey to the cross. That's when he began calling his 12 disciples, and he also began proclaiming, began proclaiming this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's a similar message that John the Baptist was preaching before Jesus came on the scene. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does it mean to repent? I'm asking you, what do you think it means when you hear someone say repent? Now, often we hear this uh, from coming from somebody who seems a little crazy with maybe a big board on the street corner yelling, repent, the end is near, right? We hear that a lot. We have a tendency to kind of blow that off. So what does it mean to you when you hear someone tell, uh, tell you that you need to repent? Change directions. What does that mean, Dad? What do you think that means? Uh, well, to me, it means that uh, if you're going, you know, in a, if you're taking a path that does not please the Lord, then turn around and go the other way because you're doing it wrong. Okay. All right. Anyone else have anything to add to that? Oh, yeah. I think when we recognize that, that we are doing wrong and uh, we're not doing right in front of God's presence or we're not <coughs> doing exactly what He expects from us and then we would like to go to Him and ask for forgiveness. So repentance starts with recognizing that you've done something. Okay. Yes, Starla. Well, to me, it means first you feel sorry for the sin. You realize that you're, you're, you're a sinner. You're just, we all sin, but uh, you're deep in sin. And you always judge away. And like my wife was saying, it's to turn around. You turn from the way you're going to sin and turn toward the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and, I, and I'm only believing the way the heart I believe if it starts with your sin, go uh, try out your sins, lay it out before him in prayer. 
sin is righteous, I think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with everyone. Wasn't that nice that nobody got it wrong? Not that we get things wrong in here. So I looked it up. Okay, so repent comes from the Greek word metano. Oh wait, we got the phonetic spelling. Metanoeho. Mentanoeo. Greek word, mentanoeo, which means to change one's mind and purpose. Other definitions include to be changed after being with. So, in our case, after being with God, we are changed. To think differently after is another way of, of, inter- of, of translating that word. To, be, to think differently after. It also means after a change of mind, to repent, literally to think differently afterwards. So how do we know what it is that we are supposed to do to change? How do we know what it is we're supposed to change in our lives? How do we know when there's something we're doing that isn't pleasing God? How do we, how do we come to know that? You know. You know? In your heart. You just know? In yeah. your heart. In your heart. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't, though, right? what the season is all about. It's about reflecting on the things that are stumbling blocks for us. We may not know that they're stumbling blocks for us. There are some people who think, who learn in the culture of the Protestant ethic, right? The, the, the Protestant work ethic, which is you work harder and harder and harder and harder and harder, simply because working is a virtue. Until one day you realize, I have worked myself to death and I have ignored God for years. We're taught in our lives that work is a virtue. And then one day we learn, no wait, God just wants us to spend time with God. And if work is taking us away from God, it's become a stumbling block. I thought I'd like to add this. There was a point in my life when I was following a, a false prophet. And the word that he had was that it was up to us. That everything depended on our own ability, our own strength, our own growth, our spiritual superiority. And it was up to us to follow him so that he could teach us how to do all that. 
totally brainwashed into this way of thinking. God stepped in and jerked us out of that cult by our shorts. We literally got bumped on the head. It wasn't like we knew we were doing wrong. It became kind of like the road to Damascus thing where Paul yeah. gets struck blind. Yeah, knocked off his horse. Mm -hmm. yeah. So sometimes when you're a little more hard-headed than others, you get a little more of a difficult lesson. Yeah. I often ask God, can you please just show me um, the error of my ways and I'll just stop doing them so that I don't have to go through that painful lesson. <laughs> um, and sometimes I listen and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do have to go through that painful lesson, right? Um, Lent is a season of reflection where we intentionally look for those things. So hopefully that painful lesson doesn't have to happen. Because we are going to God and we are humbling ourselves. The painful lessons come when we are not humbling ourselves, right? Um, so Lent is about changing our minds and our behaviors built around those stumbling blocks. And during this time, we spend a significant amount of time with God. And after being with God, we change, hopefully, if we are opening our hearts to that experience. And we do this by reflecting on the things that actually tempt us. So Jesus was tempted by three things, three specific things in the, in the desert. Oh, oh, okay. So in the same way that Jesus was tempted by food in his starvation, in his physical hunger and need, he was tempted. He was tempted by the possibility of greatness and veneration. And he was tempted by the promise of absolute power. Yeah. Apparently, these were things that could have been weaknesses for Jesus had he not been leaning so heavily on God. Now, I don't know about you, but I am often tempted to think that I don't have anything to repent for. Yes? Well, it comes down to three temptations. We, we have the same temptations Christ had. Notice the nature of prayer was the lust of the flesh. See, all the king in the world was the lust of the eyes. Mm -hmm. And it, Throw itself off the temple, through the Son of God, was pride. Yes. You'll find that mentioned over in 1 John, after three temptations lust, and pride, and uh, that's, that's three temptations. Yep. Yep. So, I'm often tempted to think, and, and, and this goes to one of those three, that I don't have anything to repent from. I mean, I live a pretty good life, right? So I do good things. I'm kind to people most of the time. I try not try not to ever lie or cause harm to others. And so I could very easily come to believe that I have no sins to confess. Anyone else suffer from that condition? You don't have to raise your hand. Just, you know. But then I start thinking like this, and God shows me that I am committing the greatest sin. And that is pridefulness. 
and I'm instantly humbled. You see, pride is a temptation that many, many ministers and preachers have to fight, and I'm no exception. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. So here the devil was tempting Jesus with pridefulness, and that's the sin of thinking that you're better than other people, that you are infallible, and that you deserve accolades and whatever for the wonderful things that you do. You deserve praise. You deserve credit. That's pridefulness. Now, there are many other things that I need to turn away from in my life, but a lot of it I'm not even aware of, like Julie said. I think a lot of us are like that. And that's what the season is all about. It's about taking a hard look at yourself, at your life, at your priorities, and at what God is telling you, so that you can know what it is that you do that's harmful, and then you can ask God for forgiveness and to turn from those things. It is not a season of self-loathing. Do not go home and say, the pastor told me I have to hate myself. No. This is a season of humility, humbleness, to be humble before God in the same way that Jesus humbled himself before us. It's also a season of gratitude, a time to give thanks to God for being the kind of God that would come to us to rescue us from ourselves. A time when we give thanks for God's unwavering grace and love. Now, are these things that we're supposed to be doing all year? We're supposed to do these things all year long, right? We're supposed to sit with God. We're supposed to listen to God. We're supposed to pray to God. We're supposed to give thanks to God. These are, should be, daily practices for our entire lives, of course. But life can get in the way of our purpose, can't it? What are some of the things in our lives that drag us away from being totally focused on God? What are some things, just everyday things, that, that jump in our way, that get between us and God? Death. Hmm? Envy. Debt. Sports. Work. Parenting. Health. of Christianity to really sit and be still and to focus and to reconnect and to redirect our lives into a more, in a more positive direction. 
think a lot of people think of Lent as a negative time, a negative season. No, this is a season of renewal, a season of rebirth. It's a season when we reflect on how very, very much God loves us. We claim this season as our time of returning to God, of recentering ourselves on all the things that really and truly matter. One of the things that you could do is you could say, okay, God, I'm going to spend some time with you, and all I want you to do, all I need from you, is to point to the things in my life that can go away. There's so many things about life that tell us that we have to do things. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do that. But God can tell us, mm, you can live without that. In fact, you probably live better without it. Without doing it. When we practice this discipline every year, it allows us to live long, dedicated lives Dedicated to the one true God. And it helps us keep things on track for the rest of the year. It's a reset button for every year. So before I end this message, I'd like to hear from you some of the suggestions of how you can observe Lent. Because this is one of the questions that I've gotten from several folks in the congregation. What do I do to observe Lent? Because most of us do not come from this tradition. Most of us did not grow up with Lent as part of our daily lives. Um, so what are some things that we can do um, to, to practice? Some ideas. Yeah, Jenna. Improve your prayer life. Improve your prayer life. So what, what would that look like for you? in a way that is rejuvenating and renewing. If you missed last week, it's in the podcast that I, that I emailed, texted all of you guys, and it's also on our Facebook page for the church Facebook page. Some other things that I've got, I give up something that you really, really like, something that will be difficult to say no to for 40 days. Anybody done that? What'd you give up, Olivia? Pop-tarts? I mean, how often do you eat a pop-tart? That may be very difficult. I know someone else gave up Dr. Pepper, right? Five days without Dr. Pepper so far. How's your family faring? Are they still living? What did you give up? What's that? Dr. Pepper too. All right. Dr. Pepper's got a real hold on us, doesn't it? Some of you could practice some kind of a fast, which is kind of like what giving something up is. That's a fast. But you could do something a little bit more intense. For example, you could practice intermittent fasting um, for the season or giving up one meal a day for the season or whatever. You could do a progressive fast where each week or every two or three weeks you give up another meal. So by the last time right before Easter, you're not, you, you spend that last Holy Week without eating food, just drinking. You could do that. I, hear, I see some faces. It's possible. Just make sure you get your water, your fluids. You'll live. It's hard. I mean, I've heard some people do that. Um, 
You could add an exercise routine to your day. You could add prayer time to each day. Like I said last week, just five minutes before you put your head on your pillow. You can start following a Lenten devotion. I have emailed you, through Judy emailed you, forwarded you a link to an email devotional that gets emailed to you every single day, and it's a beautiful devotion. And if you want me to send it to you again so you can find it, I will be happy to do that. It's a lovely devotion. A light from this hill is what it's called. Um, you could do that. I have an app I can recommend you. They send you, a link, they, they, they send you reminders to read this beautiful devotion. That's great. You could uh, commit to coming to all of the Wednesday night Bible studies at my house and the movement meditation classes at First United Methodist that we're alternating every week through Lent. You could commit to, I'll just, I'm going to at least, I'm just going to go to church every Sunday. You could do that if that's something that you think would help you. Schedule time to meet with me for spiritual guidance and reflection. And I'd be happy to talk you through it and find out, help you figure out what's good for you. So all of these things come together to pull us back under the wings of God's protection. Because as the year goes on, we start flitting away. We start going off. We get dragged off. We get pulled off. We get, we get distracted. Everything pulls us away. And during the season of Lent is when we come back to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you are overwhelmingly special, overwhelmingly perfect, immeasurably loving and forgiving And so we ask you to be with us during this season that our faith may grow stronger. We ask you to draw us closer, to call to us, to call to our hearts. Help us to yearn for you, to miss you even, so that we are led back to spending more and more time with you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.